Beautiful, beautiful. You take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. The words will also be on the screen. Uh, but while you're turning, I want to again invite you or welcome you uh, to Bible Center Church. For those of you who are members and regular attenders, it's great seeing so many uh, on a summer Sunday morning. We also want to welcome our guests, our visitors. Thanks for visiting with us. We'd love to have you back, help you get connected, and uh, help to see God meet some needs in your life. And we also welcome those who are joining us online. Uh, Stephen tells me that every Sunday there's a couple, two, three hundred folks who join us online live. We're glad to have you with us, and we pray God's blessings on you uh, as you join us via web. If you're a soccer fan, I can't go the morning without saying a word about soccer. I'd probably know why the 9 o'clock is so full. Those of you going to get to go home and make it for the 11 o'clock hour, grab you some french fries on the way home, go Croatia, whatever team you're, uh, you're after there. We'll see who comes to the 11 o'clock service. I want to welcome you to also check out a book. Uh, every week we, we introduce a new book at the bottom of your outline. There's a book by Eugene Peterson called A Year of Daily Prayers and Reflections, Praying with the Psalms. Uh, this particular book I think will help you with what we're talking about today. Every Sunday I want to recommend a book uh, to be a help. But as you know, we're in the middle of a series, Summer in the Psalms, and we're actually going through 10 different psalms looking at 10 different ways to pray. So far, we've learned how to pray prayers of confession, prayers of joy, prayers of worship, prayers of worry, uh, prayers where we question God. But this morning, we're going to pray a different kind of prayer. We're going to pray a prayer of depression, learn how to pray through our discouragement and through our despair. And so this may be one of the hardest sermons I've ever given, so I, I certainly ask for your prayers and ask that you would have your heart open to the Lord and what he has for you today. But before we jump in, let me start by telling you a story about the job I had in college. Over the years, I may tell the same stories over and over again. I've told you about how I worked at a machine shop where we made cookie cappers. Actually, we made the cappers at one point for Oreo uh, cookies. It was a great job. I really, really loved it. I was a machinist. I worked at a Bridgeport vertical mill uh, for two years, loved being machinist, but I especially loved the perks that came with this job. You see, the companies like Nabisco would send us all the supplies so that we could test them uh, with our machines. If you've ever wished that you could have a bucket of the Oreo icing, Um, You need to work at Machine Builders and Design in Shelby, North Carolina, because you could eat it with a spoon, literally. Uh, But it was a good job. But I was thinking the other day about how I applied for the job. I showed up with my suit and tie. I had heard that the college where I was was a good place for college students to work. So again, I show up and I fill out an application and I ask to speak with the general manager. Uh, he, He was available. His name was Gonzo, Gonzo Pena. And this guy was a hard, hard worker. He had built the business with the owner essentially from scratch. And so as he came out, he, he sized me up and down, asked me a few questions. I didn't know a lot about machine work, but my dad had been a mechanic for years. So I was able to answer enough questions to land the job. And after, as we're walking around, he finally stops. And he looks me over again at my tie and my suit coat and my nice shine shoes. And he asked me a question. He said, are you trying to impress me with how you're dressed? And I didn't really know what to say about that. I mean, like, actually, yes, I am. You know, show up for a job. You want to look your best. And he says, if you come to work here, prepare to get dirty. 
you're never going to impress me with how you dress. As I was studying through Psalm 88 this week and thinking about all the things that God invites us into, I thought of Gonzo's encouragement to me. You can almost hear God as you read Psalm 88 saying, don't try to impress me with how you pray, but if you're going to pray here, prepare to get dirty. And as we read Psalm 88, I think we're going to find out why God invites us into this. The big idea today is this. It's okay to not be okay when you pray. It's okay to not be okay when you pray. Sometimes we think of the Psalms as being all happy and joyful, but actually over half the Psalms are sad or they're, they're full of burden, they're full of lament. And Psalm 88 is known by many as the most discouraging, depressing chapter in all the Bible. Nevertheless, I'm convinced we need Psalm 88 in our lives. It grounds us. It helps us live in reality and, and not in fantasy. As our pastors were preparing for this series, I knew that I was going to be out a couple weeks for vacation, and, and so we were kind of divvying up who was going to preach what psalm and when, and I really wanted to give Psalm 88 to another one of our pastors. Like, hey, Pastor Mike, Pastor Chad, Pastor Ted, you take Psalm 88, I'll, I'll take one of the others. But they, they continually pointed back to me and said, Matt, you need to do Psalm 88. It's like, thanks a lot, guys. I, I appreciate your love. But I think what they knew was that I needed Psalm 88. And after a week of living in it, I want to share my heart about why this psalm was so good for me and why I think it'll be so good for you. Maybe you've been sick lately. You need Psalm 88. Maybe you've been struggling with money lately. You, you need Psalm 88. You've been rejected by a friend. You've been abused. Maybe you're out of a job. You need Psalm 88. If you've ever felt crushed by the pressure of success, for you, money will never be a problem. For you, success will never be a problem. But maybe you just feel like you're trapped in it. You're on call 24 hours a day, and it's just soul-crushing. You need Psalm 88. If you've ever been burdened for a child, if you've ever been depressed, or if you've been to too many funerals lately, you need Psalm 88. Maybe you feel like everything's okay. You say, man, I really don't think I need Psalm 88. Well, then this morning, see this message a lot like the flight attendant's talk just before you take off. Nobody really listens to his or her talk anyway. But as soon as you hit turbulence, everybody's asking, like, what did they say? What were those instructions? So maybe you could take some notes today for a time when you may go through a darker time in your life. Why does God invite us to pray our pain? We're going to see several reasons. Number one, because God is our only hope and he wants to hear our prayers. God is our only hope and he wants to hear our prayers. If you're taking notes, Psalm 88 is divided into three sections. And understanding the three sections are important for understanding the entire psalm. Verses 1 through 9 is the first section, halfway through verse 9. And then 9 through 12 is the second section. And then verses 13 through 18 is the third section. Essentially, all three of these sections repeat themselves. They start out with this cry to God, and then it's almost a complaint to God, and then they end in complete darkness. So you're going to see this repetition three times in Psalm 88. Let's start in verse 1. He says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. If you're an optimist like I am, 
If you don't like dark, unhappy thoughts, you're going to want to dog ear verse 1 and come back there for the next 20 minutes or so. Because this is about the last time Psalm 88 gets happy. All right, so just kind of breathe it in for a moment. Lord, you are the God of salvation. Now he gets dark. He says, day and night, I cry to you. My prayer comes before you. Turn your ear to my cry. As we learned last Sunday, this word for cry doesn't just mean a simple crying out in prayer, but it's an emotive word, one of intense expression. He he is calling out to God from his pain. We see the same word in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, I call out to you, Lord, every day. I spread my hands to you. And then in verse 13, again, he says, I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. We don't know what the psalmist's burden was, but we know that he was intensely burdened. He was burdened on the inside and on the outside. And see, Psalm 88 is an example of what we call a psalm of lament. A psalm of lament. Again, over half the psalms are psalms of lament. It's where they are praying, crying out to God from their gut, getting honest about their pain, knowing that only God can heal and only God can help. Psalms of lament almost feel inappropriate. So much of what I'm about to say in the next few minutes is going to feel inappropriate. But let me assure you, this is not the words of a pastor. These are the words of God. He's crying out. He's complaining to God. If you're taking notes, you want to write down Jeremiah 2, verses 5 through 8. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God's people had grown so apathetic. They weren't really excited about the Lord, but they also really weren't broken over their sin. And in Jeremiah 2, through the prophet Jeremiah, God calls out his people for their apathy. And he says, I wish that you would get mad at me. In verse 8, it's as if he says, I wish you would shout at me. Has there ever been anybody in your life that had just kind of grown so cold to you that you would prefer them being mad at you and complaining to you and hollering at you as opposed to just leaving you alone? That's what God is doing here. He is saying, I want you passionate about something. Either be passionately against me or passionately for me, but do not be lukewarm. He calls us to lament. Willem Van Gimmeren writes this, True faith is not apathetic acceptance of whatever comes to pass, but true faith lies in wrestling with the Lord in prayer. In order to be a theologian, you have to have a really, really hard last name to pronounce. So we're going to give you another one. Walter Brueggemann. If my last name was Brueggemann, I'd be a theologian too. He says, hope does not need to silence the rumblings of the crisis to be hope. In other words, it's okay to not be okay when you pray. Why do we pray our pain to God? He gives us a second reason here in verses 3 through 5. He wants us to be people of reality, not fantasy. People of reality, not fantasy. In verses 3 through 9, he doesn't mince his words. Notice what he says in verse 3. I am overwhelmed with troubles. The word overwhelmed means full or saturated like a sponge is filled with water. Except he's not filled with water, but he's filled with trouble. And then he says, my life draws near to death. I'm accounted as those among those who go down to the pit 
I am like one without strength. Now, the word for pit here, sometimes in Scripture, can refer to the place we call hell or Gehenna. This is not what he's referring to here in verses 3 through 5. There are many other places in the Bible where that's mentioned, but here particularly, he's just talking about the pit of death. Most of us have been to so many funerals. We, we know what the hole looks like. And they may try to cover it with astroturf and nice cloth, but it's still a hole. And so he writes and he says, this is not favorable to me. I feel like I've got one foot in the grave and another foot on a banana peel. I'm just one inch away from going in there myself. The pain is real. And I love this psalm because it doesn't hide his pain. One of my friends this week invited me, encouraged me to do this. He said, in your journal, I carry around this little black like to-do book and a journal, just about everywhere I go. He says, write in your journal every instance this week when you feel or sense pain. And I thought, well, you know, how hard could it be? I thought I might have a few entries. And that started on Monday, and it went all the way through till Saturday, and I didn't realize how much pain we see and experience on a daily basis. This week seemed abnormally so, but probably just because of some of the things that, that happened here at the church and, and in ministry. This week we had a funeral for a 23-year-old young man. And to watch his mother and father mourn their son, parents should not have to bury their kids. It's just not natural. You shouldn't have to bury your kids. And the pain of that funeral, especially at the end when they were about to close the casket and watching that mom lean into the casket and almost lay on her son, you could feel the pain in your bones. This is not the way things are supposed to be. But God invites us to see life as it is, to live in reality, to, to not live in fantasy. One of my good friends this week who, who doesn't attend Bible Center uh, reached out and came by the office, and he's just going through a terrible time in his marriage and his family. And, and uh, he's just a sharp guy. I, I, I've never really seen him broken, never seen him cry. And before he left the office, I hugged him, and he hugged me, and his two sons were with him. And he just, he just shook as he cried. Have you ever seen a grown man cry? You can just feel the strength and the pain all at the same time. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He is saying, don't try to run from it, Matt. Don't try to run from it, you as a man or woman. But he says, face it, own it, look into its eyes and recognize that God says, I am big enough to get you through the pain. He invites us to get real and not to fantasize as if it's okay or it's not as bad as it really is. Verse 5, he says, I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. And then in verse 8, he says, I'm confined and I cannot escape. He's getting very graphic here. He, he is, the, the imagery here, scholars believe, is that the casket is being built around him. He, he says, I'm confined, I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. That's a Hebrew way of saying I'm discouraged. I'm totally discouraged and I'm boxed in. I remember seven or eight years ago, a time of really big discouragement in my life and in our family's life. We were about to move and, and go off to seminary and I'd loved Charleston. I'd grown up in Charleston. And for me, it was a really big deal to leave Charleston, not knowing I would ever get to come back. 
And I can remember getting ready for the move, and I was in the storage, uh, the storage room, and, and my wife wanted me to paint the shelves for our living room that was going to be at our new living room in Louisville. And I remember painting the shelves in my storage shed, and after a while, it just got so depressing. I mean, it might have been the paint fumes, right? Like after a while, probably should have had a fan. But it just after a while, you could feel the walls like closing in. That's, that's what the psalmist is referring to here. He says, I can't escape. Some of you know what that's like. The marriage is over. The body has, has received permanent damage from your choices. Your career is over. There's no coming back. And so he writes and says, lean into reality, not into fantasy. There's a, a theologian named Martin Marty. I memorize his name because his name is backwards. It should be Marty Martin, but his, his name is Martin Marty. And he writes about the day he learned Psalm 88. His wife Elsa was dying, and as every night as she took her medicine, he would go and pray a psalm with Elsa. And one night as he's praying through the psalms with Elsa, he read Psalm 87 and he skipped right to Psalm 89. And on her deathbed, she asked him, why did you skip Psalm 88? And he said, well, Elsa, it's just too hard. I was afraid, honey, you couldn't handle it. And really, I was afraid I couldn't handle it. And she said, well, read Psalm 88 anyway. And so Dr. Marty began to read through Psalm 88 and just, it just hurt to read it as his wife is, is dying, knowing that she just has days to live. And finally she reaches out and she, she holds his hand and she says, honey, at times like this, I need Psalm 88 the most. And I believe this morning in times like this, many of you need Psalm 88 the most. There's this pent-up grief, there's this hurt, there's this pain, and it's been leaking out in different ways, and you've been taking it out on your family or kicking the dog or, or whatever it is. You're getting mad at somebody you normally wouldn't be mad at, and God says, listen, listen, instead bring that to him and get real. Live in reality in your prayer. Get your prayers dirty and messy. God invites us to not be okay when we pray. Whoever tries to devise from scriptures, Martin Marty says, a philosophy of life in which everything always turns out right in the end must tear Psalm 88 out of the Bible. Walter Brueggemann again writes, the Psalms speak about all of life, not just the good parts. Here in Psalm 88, more than anywhere else, faith faces life as it is. He continues and says, it's a mark of realism for biblical faith. There are situations in which easy, cheap talk of resolution must be avoided. But here are the words not to be used frequently, but for the limited experiences when words must be honest and not claim too much. The sun doesn't always come out tomorrow. We don't always get the job we wanted Marriages end, loved ones get sick and die. We lose our youthfulness. We lose our routines and stability. We change jobs. The, our influence and power gradually decreases. Our family members age. People we love commit suicide. Spouses have affairs. And we find ourselves diagnosed with cancer or an innumerable other number of diseases. Uh, we find our company downsizing. A, ch a child is born severely handicapped, a loyal friend betrays us, somebody thinks ill of us and talks badly about us for no reason. We experience infertility and miscarriage and Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's. 
And some of our favorite things in life go away. That's part of my journal this week. It might seem a little bit trite, but I, I wrote down, maybe you saw the article, Blockbuster is nearly dead. Did you see that article this week? There's one Blockbuster left. Some of the kids are like, what's Blockbuster? What is that? Um, there's one left in Oregon. There were three left, two in Alaska, one in Oregon, and it closed. Again, it was just another reminder that life is hard. Life, familiarity goes away. And God invites us not to deny it, not to minimize it, not to blame others, not to rationalize it, not to drown it with pills or porn or food or work. But instead, God invites us into the pain to face it openly and honestly. A couple other things that I had written in my journal before we move on. One was after the funeral of the 23-year-old boy, his young man, his brother was here. And I was surprised at, at how after the funeral, I'm walking back to my office, and one of the biggest burdens I had was that this is a brother who will never see his brother again. I never met my brother when he died. But my heart just went out to him, thinking he'll never see his brother again this side of heaven. I talked to a dad this week who lost his daughter in her 20s. And normally I would, I would want to pray with him, yes, I'd want to sympathize, but, but we just stayed on the phone for a while this week. And we just talked. And it hurt. And it was supposed to hurt. I was making a visit at a couple of our, our members' house, and they were getting ready for, for a surgery this week. And as we're talking, they told me stories about my grandpa that I had never heard. My grandpa lived in Allen Creek on my mom's side. It was my mom's dad. And they just told me stories about him. And, and some were good stories about how he was a snazzy dresser. I heard about these white, white shirts that he used to wear and crisp white shirts. And he was always in style. You know, I liked hearing that. But then it was mixed emotions. You know, I, I didn't know much about my grandpa on my mom's side because he, he was an alcoholic and, and hurt the family and, and hurt my grandmother deeply and, and just... You hear those stories, I really didn't talk to him again much until right before he died. And so hearing that caused grief. This week I was going to make a visit out in Tornado, and I was looking up some houses on a map, and it just some happened the street name of the house where my great-grandmother died came up. And my great-grandmother committed suicide. I don't know if I've ever shared that here or not. My dad's grandma. And it was weird. Like, I'm just looking at the street names, and I see this come up, and all this hurt and emotion come back into my heart. And so what I'm inviting you to do as your senior pastor is join me on the journey. It's, it's, it's hard, but God wants us to pray through our pain. Now, that, that doesn't mean we can't enjoy good things. By Friday, after the week I've had, by Friday, I was ready for some Dairy Queen. I went to Dairy Queen. Yesterday morning, I went to IHOP. I went out and got some sunshine. I enjoyed some time with my daughter. But still, God invites us to get real and not pretend that it doesn't hurt. Why does God invite us to pray our pain? Number three, because it reminds us that he's in control of the chaos. He's in control of the chaos. He says in verse six, you have put me in the lowest pit. In the darkest depths, your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. If you circle in your Bible or you're taking notes, you can write down a circle the times he says you or your. I think he says it five times 
four times, but it's understood six times from verses six through eight. He says, you've done this. Your wrath did this. Lord, you did this to me. It's as if you keep sending these waves crashing into my soul. And I know you're in charge. You're doing it, but it still hurts. It's good theology. Nothing catches God by surprise. He's not the author of sin, but God is ultimately in control. He says in verse 8 again, You have taken me from my closest friends. You've made me repulsive to them. I've heard and have experienced to a very small degree that physical pain is nothing compared to losing a friend or having a friend turn their back on you. Some of you have been blackballed at work. You've been backstabbed by a best friend. You've been abandoned as a child. Or your home is too quiet. People don't call anymore. You don't get the emails or the mail anymore. Or your spouse is, is so cold and indifferent or unresponsive to your touch. The nights are too long. Or, or for some of us, it's been too many pounds ago that we won the winning touchdown in high school. Or too many dress sizes ago that we were the homecoming queen in high school. And there's this sense in which there's this loss, but God invites us to see that he's still sovereign and that he's in control of what seems like chaos. And so it's okay to not be okay when we pray. Why do we pray our pain? Number four, because it reminds us that death is our enemy, not our friend. Death is our enemy, not our friend. In verses 10 through 12, notice these questions. It's six questions he asks. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? In other words, does, that, does their ghost, does that part of them, the spiritual part that lives on when the body is dead, does it rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Is your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? The obvious answer he's looking for is no. Now, we have to be careful not to read the New Testament into the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is it'd be easy for us as New Testament believers to look at verses 10 through 12 and say the answer to all six questions is yes. Well, of course so. When you die, you go and you, you praise the Lord. But that's not the point he's making. The psalmists knew that there was life after death. We won't take time to read them, but you want to write down Psalm 23. Twice in that passage, he acknowledges the presence of God in death. Psalm 139, he says, if I go to heaven, you are there. He he acknowledges that. He acknowledges everlasting life in Psalm 49, 15. He acknowledges resurrection in Psalm 16 or Psalm 71 in verse 20. The psalmists were very aware that heaven is real and there's a future resurrection. That's not a question. But that's not what he's doing in Psalm 88. In Psalm 88, this author is getting so real that he is saying, death is still not good. Death is still the enemy. And this is important for us to see because the New Testament actually talks that way. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says the last enemy that one day is going to be destroyed is death. Now think about it. Why is it so important that we acknowledge this? It's important because it's essential to the grieving process. 
It's essential. Sometimes I think Greek thought has so woven itself into Christianity. And if you look at church history, really 1,900 years ago when the church was just getting started, the Jewish thought began to fade off and the Greek thought began to, began to seep in. And the Greeks thought that death was a good thing. Why, in death, your body was going to die and your spirit was going to be free to be the person that it was somehow created or evolved to be. But you can kind of see how that seeped into the church. Now, not in the Middle East. If you're of Middle Eastern descent or, or if you've ever been to a, a funeral of somebody of Middle Eastern descent, I think they actually capture the heart of God at their funerals more than many of us at our funerals. I'm not saying you've got to hire professional grievers or make a scene, but have you ever watched somebody just genuinely grieve? God is saying to us, that is actually the biblical response to death. It's not supposed to be this way. That's why in John chapter 11 and verse 35, when Jesus knew that his friend Lazarus was dead, what did he do? He wept. He cried. And so God wants us to look at death, and yes, we know there's a heaven, and yes, we know there's a future resurrection, but he's inviting us to see that death stinks, and in our grief, we're to call on the Lord and to pray to the Lord because it's okay to not be okay. The fifth reason why God invites us to be honest about our pain is that God blesses vulnerability and openness. God blesses vulnerability and openness. In verses 13 through 14, he moves into his strongest accusations yet. He says in verse 13, I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why do you reject me and hide your face from me? And then in verse 15, he, he, he says, From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. For years, it's not new, for years this has gone on. Some of you know what that's like. I have borne your terrors and I'm in despair. The word for despair, I love this, means numb. It's a Hebrew word for the same thing that happens whenever you sleep on your arm. You ever wake up in the middle of the night and like, feel like there's like some cold arm with you? Like whose arm is this and it's actually yours? You ever done that? Maybe I'm the only one. That, that's the word here. He says, I feel like that. I feel numb. That's where some of you are at right now. You're just numb. Just, just numb. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He says, I feel numb. I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. He's getting vulnerable and open with God. He's saying things that some of us would dare say to God. But actually, it's what 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us to do. He says, cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, says, the very presence of these prayers in the Psalms are witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. God isn't concerned for us when we bring our raw prayers to him. God is concerned for us when we stop talking to him altogether. And so he calls us, he invites us. And the last two verses of this psalm say in verse 17, all day long they surround me like a flood. 
They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from, my, from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. In the original language, the word darkness is the last word in Psalm 88. So literally it would say, my closest friend, space, darkness. That's a really dark way to end the psalm. But he, he's reiterating, he uses the word darkness in verse 6 and in verse 12 and also in verse 18. Ancient theologians called this the dark night of the soul. Now let's think for a moment. What about the song, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands? Anything wrong with that? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Galatians chapter 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then what's the second one? Joy. Joy is a gift from God. We should enjoy his good gifts in life. But if we're not careful as we grow up out of children's ministry into adulthood, we'll, we'll think that if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands is the theme of life. But then what happens over time is we realize way down deep that's really not way, the way life is. We, we, we realize that, that the song, like, I'm in right, upright, downright, outright, happy all the time. Remember that song? We, we face a little life and we're like, wait a minute. My Sunday school teacher told me this. But reality, life stinks. So what God's calling us to do now as a church is, is we want to equip you. We want to strengthen you and prepare you to know that, yes, when it's happy all the time, enjoy it. Cling to it. Go on vacation. Enjoy sunrises. Enjoy great food. Enjoy Dairy Queen. I'll meet you there. Yes, do all those things. But don't be surprised when life isn't always Dairy Queen. He is saying we live in a broken world of sin. And the consequences of sin are things that we feel every day of our lives. Sometimes we go to God in prayer and we beg God for things. And we get up off our knees and we don't feel any better than when we started. God says, expect that sometimes. Because sometimes that's just the way life is. Sometimes we come to church and we're prepared to, to leave excited for the kingdom and pumped up for the kingdom. And I love it when you feel that way when you leave. And I love getting the emails when you feel that way when you leave. But sometimes you come to God in worship and it feels like the heavens are silent. And you leave worse than you did when you came in. And you say, God, what is this about? Psalm 88 to you is a gift. Psalm 88 to say is saying it doesn't mean something is wrong with you. It just means that something is drastically wrong with the world. And one day he's going to fix it. And one day all the wrong will be made right. And one day there'll never be death. And one day there'll never be tears. And one day you will never go to another funeral. But today is not that day. So until then, keep praying Psalm 88. Because God says it's okay to not be okay when you pray. There's one more point that has to be made before we leave. And that is that praying our pain points us to Jesus. It reminds us that, number six, Jesus understands. In verse 18, he ends with darkness and we ask, where is Jesus in Psalm 88? 
Well, for 2,000 years, the church has connected Psalm 88 with Psalm 22. Many churches and traditions, for Good Friday, they read Psalm 22 and then they read Psalm 88. Some believe, some scholars believe that Psalm 88 points to Luke 23:49. In Luke 23:49, it says all of Jesus' friends forsook him and fled. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he prayed and agonized, let this cup pass from me. But probably the greatest reference to Jesus is here in Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, 45 and 46, it says, from noon until about three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus stepped into your darkness so that you could step into his light. Jesus was momentarily forsaken so that you could be eternally received. In order for him to forgive you, he had to pay the price of your sin and mine. Think about it if somebody hits your car today in the parking lot on the way home. You're getting ready to pull out. Somebody backs right into your car. I hope it doesn't happen. My insurance agent's here. If it does happen, he can take care of you. But if it happens, you have two choices. You can either make them pay or you can forgive them. But even if you choose to forgive them, think about what that means. If you say, I forgive you, that means that you're going to pay for the repairs. Somebody always has to pay for the repairs. They always do. And so for, for Jesus to say, I forgive you, come to me for salvation, somebody still had to pay your damages. And so on the cross as he died and darkness covered the land for the space of those hours and he was, he was forsaken by his father, what he did was he stepped into Psalm 88 so that you one day can step out of Psalm 88. Some of you are still there now and you feel like you're in it and you feel like you're being crushed by Psalm 88, but there's coming a day you can step out of Psalm 88 because Jesus stepped into Psalm 88 and that's why he says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest because he took your burden. It's okay to not be okay when you pray. What do we do with all this before we're done? How can we live out this psalm this week? Here's what I would encourage you to do. One, I would really encourage you this week. Could I encourage you to write down for one week, every time you experience suffering or sadness, to write it down, maybe in your phone, on your memos, or maybe write it down in a journal. Just try it for a week. Now, don't go too, too dark, right? If you stay going too, too dark, grab a friend, go enjoy some sunshine. But watch what happens as you write down. Every time you're, you're already aware, you just don't know you're aware. And you write it down. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is pray it. Just pray it. After you write it down, pray it to God. God, this isn't right. I just saw this on the news. This isn't right. God, I just got this phone call. This isn't right. God, so-and-so is hurting. God, this isn't right. You pray it. And watch what God will do to your soul. I'm on the journey with you. This is new to me. I told you I don't like to live in pain. But I believe as we do this as a church, God will enlarge us, enlarge our capacities 
to suffer with others, to pray with others, to cry with others, and to love with others. This is the key to us loving our city like Jesus loves our city. It's, this isn't an advertising stunt. We're loving our city because we hurt with our city. We love our neighbors because we hurt with our neighbors. And I believe God will do great things through your heart and through mine if we'll remember that it's okay to not be okay when we pray. Will you pray with me as the band comes? Our Father, thank you for getting us through Psalm 88. I pray that above all things this week, we will see that Jesus fulfills it for us and that, Father, make us more of a grounded people. Make us more of a, an honest, authentic, real people so that we can authentically, honestly, and really love the people you've put into our life. Lord, I pray for the man here today who's maybe crying in his garage and nobody knows it. Would you encourage his heart today and help him to call out to you in his garage? God, I pray for the woman here who almost didn't come today. She heard about what the sermon was going to be out and she almost didn't come. I pray you'd encourage her heart today. Help her to know that there's nothing wrong with her. She's just normal. And it's okay for her to pray and not be okay. Lord, would you use this message in our lives for the rest of our lives? Help us to talk a little slower, listen more than we speak, walk a little slower, listen, love a little deeper. And may this make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen and amen.